This is the birthday uh, of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, of which we are a part. That's 1,200 churches across the nation. We had our own Quebec District Conference, whatever it was, a week and a half ago. Uh, that's 110 churches, of which we are one of those. And that's part of 1,200 around Canada. And so uh, it's nice to be a part of something bigger than yourself, yes? And so uh, today is the day that we acknowledge 100 years, and today is also uh, the day of Pentecost, which I'll explain in, uh, in a few moments is sort of part of our message, all right? So we're, we're finishing a series today called Less is More. That's a marketing term. Uh, those of you who are in marketing, you know what that means. But the idea is um, sometimes less information is more powerful. Sometimes uh, a short message, um, it, it, it grabs more than a whole big long thing. And uh, even in the church today, even people who profess to be followers of Jesus and read the Bible and try and follow the Bible, you know, we have so much information. Um, and now we have information on our little phones and all of our electronic devices. We can get information anywhere we want. We can get the Bible anywhere we want, in any language, in any, anything we want, any translation, anything we want. And yet it seems like we're more disobedient than ever. It seems like we're more daft than ever, more obtuse than ever in terms of what we're actually doing for God and what we're actually doing and what He commands us to do. Uh, so sometimes less is more, and there are, there are in the Bible some really, really short little tiny books that we tend to overlook them, and they're packed with truth. And so we've looked at, um, at three of these four books so far. We looked at two of the little letters that John wrote. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Johns in the New Testament, right? There's John, there's one John, two John, three John, three John. So we looked at second John, or sometimes called two John, I suppose, and third John. Those are two letters, one he wrote to an individual, one he wrote to a church, but they're very personal and they have wonderful application for us. We looked um, at the book of Jude, or I sometimes call it the book of Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, and we took a little detour on Mother's Day and looked at a really short book in the Old Testament called the Book of Ruth, all right? So today, we're going to finish with a book called Philemon, which is in the Bible's New Testament, all right? You can dig it up on your, your, your device or your paper Bible or whatever you have. Really, really short uh, little letter, and, um, but it's packed with powerful, powerful truths that relate to us today, all right? So uh, this is a letter that has a particular audience. It's about a particular theme, but you can brush by it so, so, so quickly as you're reading your Bible. It is written from prison. Uh, the guy who wrote it, his name is, any of you know? Say it louder. Paul, yeah, it's Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is writing from a Roman prison cell. Paul, you, did you get the answer right? That's no fair. Your name is Paul. You're named after him, okay? So he's writing from a Roman prison cell, and we see in the book of Acts in the New Testament that Paul was arrested uh, toward the end of the book of Acts, and he eventually faces charges in Rome where he wanted to go in the first place. 
And so it's commonly thought that this is where Paul is writing this letter from. He's under arrest there in Rome. And there's actually three other letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote in this time. We call them the prison letters or the prison epistles. So you have Philemon is one of them. Do you know any of the other ones? Test your Bible knowledge. Told you less is more. So one of them starts with an E. Maybe the people on Facebook, hi, all those of you who are on Facebook, if you're paying attention, give me the answer. Okay, starts with an E. Ephesians, yeah, that's written from prison. Yeah, what's the other one? Starts with a C. Colossians, written from prison, yeah. And uh, Philemon, written from prison. There's one more, starts with a P, and it's not Paul. Philippians, yeah, so Philippians, written to the church in Philippi. Ephesians, written to the church in Ephesus. Colossians, written to the church in Colossae, and, uh, and Philemon, written to a particular person, all right? So it's written from prison to a man named Philemon who was, get this, a slave owner. So he owned slaves. Now, uh, just, just as a, as a, uh, to give you some context, um, more than half the Roman Empire at that time were slaves. Now, slavery back then and slavery in the modern era, a little bit different, okay? So back then, it's extremely common across the Roman Empire. You've got more than one out of two people were slaves. Slaves had no legal identity. They were owned by somebody else. They lived in their house. They worked for their business for the rest of their life. They were owned by somebody else. Slaves in that time often could be highly educated people, especially if they were Greek, and then they were kind of assimilated uh, into Roman culture when the Romans dominated the Greeks, although, although the Greek culture was very, very prevalent. Uh, you know, the, if a got, uh, 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 was sold on the market, the slave market, to a, to a Roman, uh, that, that Greek could have been very, very highly educated. They could be a teacher, they could be a physician, they could be a, a lawyer, and they lived in that household and they served their master, they worked for them. Uh, but sometimes they attained positions of authority in that whole structure, and it was a very common thing. Again, a little different than what we think of as slavery today. This is not the same as, for example, the transcontinental uh, slave trade of, you know, whatever it was, 200 plus years ago uh, that was brought down by William Wilberforce and some of the reformers. If you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, okay, a little bit different than first century Rome. So you have a very, very common thing. And this man, Philemon, was one of those guys. He would have been wealthy. Um, and he owned people. He was a slave owner. So Paul is writing directly to this man in this time, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. He is a slave owner. And he's writing to him about a runaway slave of his. And that slave's name is Onesimus. Okay, Onesimus. And when we read through the letter, there are some clues in the letter that tell us about the people. So I'm going to read the thing really, really fast. Uh, it's 25 verses. If you'll, if you'll follow along with me, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Again, he's writing from Rome. Uh, and from prison, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend 
and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So first clue for you, Philemon, the slave owner, was a Christian. And there was a church meeting under, probably in his home, and there's a couple of other people named there, Aphia, Archippus, who are also named in the book of Colossians. To give you a little bit of context, you read Colossians chapter 3, chapter 4, you see the same people start to crop up. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God. This is kind of the way Paul opens most of his letters. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Wow, that was on cue. Are you okay? Okay, you unplug something? Okay, okay, good. Don't do that again. Okay. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Okay, it's a standard kind of greeting. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. I would agree. I pray that we all would be active in sharing our faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love, Philemon, slave trader or slave owner. I shouldn't say trader, he's an owner. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. All right, so again, you've got to wrap your head around this. This man is a Christian slave owner. He owns people, again, fairly common, very common in the Roman Empire back then, and yet he's a believer. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, because you're a believer, Philemon, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Now, when Paul calls him his son, he's not saying his biological son. He's talking about his son in the faith. So Onesimus apparently was also a Christian. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Okay, we need to stop because Paul is playing all kinds of games with words here. What's going on is that Onesimus was owned by Philemon. And Onesimus is not with Philemon at this time of writing. He's with Paul. And Paul wants to send Onesimus back to his master, Philemon. And he says, this man, Onesimus, has become a follower of Jesus. He's, he's, uh, he's became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Now, it's a play on words because the name Onesimus means useful. In the Greek language, that's what it meant. So he says, formerly, he was useless to you. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. Apparently what's going on here is that Onesimus was on the run. 
and he ran away from his master Philemon. He ends up trying to hide in the streets of Rome, and he somehow runs into the apostle Paul and becomes a follower of Jesus. And now Paul is going to appeal to Philemon to take back his slave. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains. Again, all these people are Christians. While I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you, uh, you do will be spontaneous and not forced. So I'm not trying to manipulate you. I want you to do this out of love and in a, in a spontaneous fashion. I want you to take him back. Why? Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Now, you'll see in Ephesians, if you read that prison letter, you'll see in Colossians, if you read that prison letter, that Paul talks about different kinds of people. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about children and their parents. He talks about slaves and masters and how they should behave with one another. Again, you're talking about a commonly accepted thing that was across the Roman Empire. So again, when you see that word slave, try not to be too, too, too offended by it. This is what was going on back then. And Paul is saying this. He said, I want you to take him back, but no longer as a slave, better than that. Now as a dear brother, you see, because he's a believer. He is very dear to me, Paul says about Onesimus, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong or owes you anything, it's probably true that Onesimus stole something from his master Philemon. It was very common for slaves to steal from their masters. Uh, those of you who know, I, I, I work two days a week over at uh, Mission Nouvelle Génération there on Provence. You know what's common over there? The people who, who uh, work there? Uh, well, I shouldn't. It's not that common, but it's common enough. You know what it is? Theft. You say people would steal from a food bank? Absolutely, they would. And I have seen that happen. So back then, not much different. So uh, if he owes you anything, if he's done, any, if he done you any wrong or he owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul says. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. He's so slick in the way that he writes, isn't he? And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer of your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends, your, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, uh, Demas, and Luke, and my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, and it ends there. These, these people, by the way, at the end, are all named in the book of Colossians, so you have some context there. So that, that's what's going on. You've got a guy who's on the run 
He, he probably stole something. He becomes a Christian under Paul's watch. Paul wants to send him back. He's writing to Philemon, who's a Christian. He, he's talking about on, Onesimus, who's a Christian now, and he himself is a Christian. You say, well, interesting, but what in the world relevance does that have to do with me? I mean, I don't, I don't even, I've never even read this letter before in the Bible. It's all new to me, but who cares? All right, so buried underneath, there's some really relevant stuff for us today. Number one, the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I'm talking about the, that's an, that's an old word, uh, which, which comes from a phrase that means good news, I'm talking about the message of Jesus and his coming and his death and resurrection and, and his, the forgiveness of sins that he, that he gives to us and his, his, his soon coming return, the stuff that, that we've believed in this movement for a hundred years, the gospel, it transcends, it cuts across, it lives above culture, any culture. So back then, you have a system where more than half of the population are slaves. They're owned by somebody else. They would be owned for the rest of their life. The only, the, the, or a major difference between the slaves and the other lowest class of people called the plebs back then, that was the poor people, the, the difference was the slaves had food. And the slaves had a place to live, the, play, the slaves had sustenance, the slaves had a, a job, if you will. And this is why Paul addresses them in Ephesians and Colossians, almost like a boss and, and employee type of relationship that we could think of today. But it's a very, very common thing, but you're still owned by somebody else. That was the culture. More than half of the Roman Empire was comprised of slaves. And you look at the power of the gospel message in this context. What does he say in verse 15? Perhaps the reason that Onesimus, whose name means useful and who had become useless to you, but now he's useful, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. Ah, no longer as a slave, but even better than that. So you had him working for you, you had him doing all this stuff for you, fine, fine, fine. You win, but he's owned by you. No, no longer as a slave, but better than that as a dear brother. The gospel cuts across, transcends, lives above culture. Why is this so important for us today? Because we so often try to pin the gospel message and the message of Jesus to a particular culture. We try and pin it in there. So uh, example for us in the modern day here in the province of Quebec, and we've talked about this before, the, the political situation in Quebec is, is really hot right now. Okay, we're, we're all taking a break for Grand Prix weekend and all of that, but the protests will continue, right? And people are protesting this Bill 21 and this thing that, you know, people who, uh, who work in the public sector, they can't wear any of their religious stuff, you know, no, no yarmulkes for Jewish people and no, uh, you know, Muslims can't wear their thing and the Christians can't wear their crosses and blah, blah, blah. And people are in an outrage, I mean, there's an outrage, Protest after protest after protest after protest. I mean, it goes on and on and on. This thing makes international news. And people around the world, they look at us and they say, what a crazy place to live. You can't even wear your, 
your patin there for whatever religion. You can't even wear it here, there in Quebec. What a crazy place to live. Let me ask you this question. Does wearing a cross make you a Christian? Does that make you a Christian? I mean, if wearing a cross makes you a Christian, you're in real trouble. Because if you don't have that cross, you're not a Christian. I mean, it, it is, is the stuff that we wear what identifies us? Is that what we need to identify our faith? The stuff that we wear? Wow, that's a pretty fragile faith. You take that religious garment off, what, you no longer have faith? I mean, shouldn't faith transcend whatever? I mean, that's a cultural thing. Whatever religious, you got to wear this and you got to wear that. Wow, I mean, that's a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty shaky faith system, isn't it? If you'd, have asked the, the, if you'd have asked the people back then in the first century, in the first century Rome, you know, these slaves, let's say, if you were to tell them, you know, the Roman Empire is going to tell you that you can't wear, you, you may be a follower of this Jesus, the Roman Empire is going to tell you you can't wear any more of your religious garments anymore. You know what they would say? Who cares? We don't have any rights anyway. You, you people in the 21st century, you have so many rights. You even get to protest when your religious convictions are being challenged, you even get to protest legally in the street. You can legally gather and hold up signs and protest. Like, we don't do any of that. We're, we're under the Roman rule. You people in the 21st century, you have so much freedom. That's what they would say. But you know what else they would say? They'd say, we don't identify with Jesus because of what we wear. We don't identify with Jesus because of our socioeconomic status. We don't identify with Jesus because of any of those things. We identify with Jesus because the gospel story transcends culture. It cuts across culture. It cuts across all of that stuff. And it doesn't matter what time or place in history, we always try and pin Jesus down to a particular culture. You see this in the United States like crazy Politics and Christianity are like fused together in the United States. Have you noticed this? Anything that happens that's of a political nature in the United States is connected to Christianity. As if Christianity has anything to do with American politics. It has nothing to do with American politics. It cuts across every kind of culture. Every time we try and pin the gospel down and say, well, this is our culture and we have to fight for this and fight for that. No, the gospel is so far above that. Even Roman slavery, first century slavery, the gospel cuts totally across that. It transcends culture. Never, never get trapped into thinking that your Christianity is Canadian or your Christianity is American, or your Christianity is African. It cannot be pinned down to any culture or time. It transcends all of that. And never think that you have to wear certain garb, certain garments or crosses or all this stuff to identify you as a Christian. You know what should identify you as a Christian? The way you live. The way you walk, the way you talk. And some people would say, yeah, yeah, but that, that means we have to dress a certain way. Well, I mean, that means you have to wear clothes. You know, I think it would be a good idea if you actually wore clothes. But you don't have to wear crosses and all this stuff to make you a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is the gospel story comes in 
to your life and the real Jesus comes into your life and starts a transformation process from the inside out. It has nothing to do with politics or culture or cultural standards or norms, whether they're sinful or not sinful. It has nothing to do with that. It transcends all of that. The gospel transcends culture. Number two, the gospel gives us a common fellowship regardless of our background. So it's kind of expanding on the same idea. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul is a Hebrew. He's a, he's a Jewish uh, Pharisee who was a church destroyer, who, who brought Christians to prison, who put Christians to death. Th that's where he comes from, and he becomes a follower of this Jesus. And the man who once tried to destroy the church becomes the greatest apostle, missionary, evangelist, church planter in the entire New Testament. Go figure. The man who everybody was terrified of is now the man who is the biggest promoter of the message that he was trying to destroy. That's who Paul is, verse 1. Uh, verse 10, um, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Okay, hold on. There's Onesimus, he's not Hebrew, he's not Jewish, he's a Gentile. And he's from Colossae. Colossae is like a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Okay, today is the day of Pentecost. Told you I was going to talk about that. The day of Pentecost we see in the book of Acts, that's 50 days over the Jewish, uh, past the Jewish Passover. That's why we get the Penta 50. So 50 days after Passover, they had this, this Old Testament celebration, uh, the festival of weeks, they would call it. And they would wave a special offering of barley and harvest before the Lord. And this was also called the day of Pentecost. In the book of Acts, that's the day where the Holy Spirit comes and the church is kind of explodes into existence, this new community of people. There are people who had come into Jerusalem from all over different parts of the Roman world. They were, they were Jewish people. They came into Jerusalem to celebrate this, this, this harvest festival. It was a festival that required them to make an appearance at the temple. So they come for this thing to, to happen, and their lives are transformed. The Holy Spirit comes, and it, it, there's 3,000 people who come to Christ, and they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? This is like a whole new community of faith that happens, but it starts in Jerusalem. Colossae, where Onesimus is from, is a thousand miles at least from Jerusalem. It's in Asia Minor. How in the world did a guy from Asia Minor become a follower of Jesus when it started in Jerusalem? Well, because Jesus himself said, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, which is a city, in Judea, which is the province that it was in, and in Samaria, which was a little further out there, and to all the uttermost places in the world, even a thousand miles, you know, northwest, wherever it is on the map there, even in Colossae, even a runaway slave named Onesimus. Wow. So you've got him, and then you've got another guy who's as different as could be, Philemon. And Philemon is a slave owner, but he's also a follower of Jesus. And you say, you, could, you couldn't get three more completely different people than Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. 
I mean, you've got three wildly different people. They're coming from different religious backgrounds. They're coming from different socioeconomic strata. They're coming from, I mean, they speak different languages. And yet they have this common bond, this common fellowship because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Isn't that cool? I mean, I think that is so cool and so indicative of what I even see today. This is a small church by, by modern standards. By the ancient world, it would probably be an average-sized church, actually. But this is a modern, by modern standards, this is a small church. There's probably 30 different nations represented in this church. There is a high likelihood that the person you're sitting next to is not from the country that you were born in. Do a little experiment and ask them and you'll see. Probably in this room, I'd bet there'd be 18 different nations represented in this room. And yet, we have this kind of common, common bond uh, that's a little bit hard to explain. Um, I saw it uh, uh, last Friday night. We were having the worship night over on Tashiro. Some of you were there. And I saw there's a lady in our church, brand new family from South Africa. Okay, they're not here today. They're, they're in the process of moving today. They're from South Africa. They found our church on the internet. They've been in Canada for, I think, three weeks, four weeks from South Africa. Okay, they find it very, very cold here, like the temperature very cold. It's 20 degrees. They're like, this is winter for us. Okay, they're, they're literally wearing multiple layers of clothing at 20 Celsius, all right? If you live in Quebec, you walk around in shorts at 20, but they were like frigid in, in 20 degrees. So brand new family in our church from South Africa. So they come to this worship night thing. It's the first time. They're brand new in our church. And there's another family who's there the same night. They're not here today, but they were there the same night. And, uh, and the, the, the woman is from Indonesia. So at the end of the thing, the Indonesian woman and the South African woman are up at the front, and they're, they're singing songs that they both know the words to. And they're next to each other, and it's like they're, they're acting like they're sisters or something. They're acting like they know each other. They don't know each other from Eve. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's like they knew each other. Why is that? That's because the gospel gives us this kind of common, this common ground, this common fellowship, this common foundation. That is so amazing. You can go around the world and meet another Christian, and it's like all of a sudden you feel there's something there. It's intangible, but you can still feel it. There's a bond that you have. Why? Because the same Jesus that lives in them lives in you. Isn't that neat? That's the power of the gospel. And finally, uh, number three, the gospel. Um, shows forgiveness on the basis of atonement, on the basis of atonement. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you look closely at what Paul says to Philemon. Um, if he has done anything wrong, if he has done you any wrong or he owes you anything, you charge it to me. Oh, my goodness, where did he get that idea from? What, why would he say that? Because what he's doing is he's mimicking, he's living out exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, we often think of God this way. We say, and even you talk to your non-Christian friend, you know, and you tell them God is love. They say, oh, yeah, God is love, right? They'll love that. 
God is love. Yes, God is peace and love. And yeah, God is, oh, yes, God is love. You're going to get no objection from God is love. And God forgives us of our sin. God forgives us. And you, you probably won't get much objection from that. Maybe sin you will start to get some eyebrows raised. But, you know, God forgives. God always forgives. No matter what I do, God will forgive me. Yes. Right? We like that. God is love. God is forgiveness. Uh, but do you know on what basis God forgives us of our sin? Do you know on what basis he does that? He doesn't just say, Oh, it's okay, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, it's okay, you know, you're, it's part of you, you know, you just sin, and that's, that's just kind of the way things are, and I'll just always forgive you, and yeah, oh yeah, just come to me, I'll just always forgive you, I'll always forgive you, I'll always forgive you, I'll always love you, I'll always forgive you. On what basis does God do that? For God so loved the world, yes, that he, he gave, he gave. His one and only son. And what did that one and only son do to demonstrate that God loves us and forgives us for our sin? What did that one and only son do? Those of you on Facebook, talk to me. What, what, what did that one and only son do? He, yeah, he, he died. He died. We call, that, we call that an atonement. We call that a covering for sin. So it's not just... I love you, I love you, I love you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. But on the basis of what you stole, what you took from me, God says, how you sinned against me, God says, I have put that on my son. He has paid it. He has said, charge it to me. I will pay it back. This is what Paul is emulating here. What did Jesus say when he's on the cross? Some of the last words of Jesus. It is, not it is going to be continued later, right? It is, it is finished. So in the language that's written there, this is a, this is a monetary term that's being used. Paid in full. The sin debt has been paid. I will pay it back, Paul says to the slave owner Philemon. Jesus said, I have paid it all. Once and for all on the cross, charge it to me as if Jesus was saying it to God the Father. Charge it to me. I will pay it. It is finished. So God doesn't forgive you just because he, that's what he does. God forgives you on the basis of what he has already done in Christ. This is why you can come to God. This is why you can be assured of God's love. This is why you can be assured of God's forgiveness. And this is why we even exist as a church. Because of what Jesus has done for us. And that is a picture of communion. Communion. 